0: Welcome to the Property Nomads podcast, and here
1: is your host, Rob Smallbone.
0: I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Alexander, the founder of property118.com. Quite a a great introduction coming up, so do bear with me. Uh, Mark is the co-founder of the Money Centre, which ranked number 38 in the Sunday Times Profit Track 100 in 2008, the year before Mark exited. He's also the founder member and former board member of the National Association of Commercial Finance Brokers, NACBF, founder of Property118.com, lead claimant in the UK's largest ever direct class action case, which was one and created two pieces of case law and the courts of appeal. A landlord since 1989, property-related financial services, been involved with since 1987, and also a tax exile since February 2016. Mark, that's a very impressive resume which one of those would you say be most proud of
1: uh that's like saying pick pick your favorite child isn't it really uh i'm proud of all of them for different reasons um so I, I'm not going to try and pick one today. I think they're all great. With one point, NACFB, not NACBS, NACFB, National Association of Commercial Finance Brokers.
0: Uh, my apologies. I, get, I I do sometimes get my letters a bit uh, a bit confused there, not So a not a problem. No,
1: but, my apologies on that. Uh, um, th- th- thanks for inviting me to to join you on your show. It's a, it's, a, it's an honour and a privilege. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. There's so much to so much to go for, and uh, in, in terms of property. Well, well, actually, let's start from the beginning. 1989, you've been a landlord since then. So that's quite a long time. But what got you into property in the first place?
1: Uh, so I was an accidental landlord to start off with. Bought a property that I couldn't afford. Uh, interest rates went through the roof. Property prices collapsed. Uh, I couldn't really afford to keep the property, but I was working in financial services. So I couldn't afford to go bankrupt or post my keys through the the lender's letterbox as others were doing at that time when they found themselves in a similar negative equity trap where they couldn't afford the mortgages. Uh, So, I think I was a little bit foolish to start off with um, and I got myself into this very difficult situation and the reason I became a landlord is I had to rent my property uh, and then instead rent another one to live in, a much smaller little flat. Uh, and there was obviously a bit of a differential and that just about made ends meet. But it was a very, very tough beginning for me uh, in, uh, in property and financial services, because I got myself into a position where I literally had to make it work.
0: And what got you into financial services in the first place? Is that something you study at university or you just have a general interest in? Uh,
1: so, no, I went into the insurance industry in 1987 um and did quite well at it so uh I very quickly progressed onto doing commercial finance uh mainly professional practice finance for doctors dentists veterinarians uh and that led me into meeting high net worth individuals who were investing into property and Uh, that's kind of where my property passion came from. So even though I kind of rented my property out as a survival technique to start off with, uh, I started buying more properties a little bit later on, once my financial services career had started to take off and, uh, we actually got some money together.
0: And you've been going ever since then, are you you still at the time recording, are you still actively adding to your portfolio or have you got to a stage where the portfolio is? it's okay, and you're now into other bits and pieces such as property woman money?
1: No, so uh, I've been divesting uh, since 2010. Uh, I was actively building until then. Um, I got divorced in the uh, mid 2000s, mid to late 2000s. So that cost me an awful lot of property and cash. So we did some rebuilding immediately after that. And, uh, since I've moved over to Malta, uh, my strategy is very much an exit strategy. So 30 years in this business takes its toll. Um, you know, we've seen thousands of tenants come and go, uh, most of which have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, one or two disaster stories, which I'm sure any landlord can tell, uh, especially in the early years, none of late, uh, none of probably in the last eight or nine years, I'm pleased to say. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I'm actively divesting now, and the plan is to sell one or two properties every year as and when they become vacant. I've got a, a little financial model to decide whether it's worth keeping or selling them when they become vacant. am not serving any notices on any tenants. Um, I don't believe in that. I believe in operating ethically. So some of my tenants have been there five, 10 plus years, uh, and I'm very happy for them to stay. But when they leave, that, that's when I take the commercial decision. Uh, Is this a keeper or do I sell it? And the theory is that selling one or two properties a year will probably keep me going for as long as I might live.
0: That just underlines the importance of having a a very long-term strategy with property because you see so many people that come in and get really excited from the start and are thinking maybe one or two years ahead, but evidently from getting divorced and assuming being on that sort of that roller coaster as such, you you seem to have a very long-term approach to property, which is very important. Would you say that's the case?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Donald Trump, who love him or hate him, people accept that he's quite a successful guy. Uh, and before he became president and when he was very much into property, one of his little mantras was don't wait to buy property, buy property and wait. Uh, so, you know, the, over the last 20 years plus, um, the, the appreciation on property has covered up a lot of mistakes. Uh, thankfully, cause I made a lot of mistakes at the very beginning. Um, but yes if you're looking at property in fact if you look at any kind of long-term investment uh then it has you have to get that blend of do you want a long-term investment and only an investment and only passive if which in if that's the case then property isn't the right medium for you if you're making decent money and you want to park it somewhere and grow and build a business alongside whatever you do um then that is a property investment strategy I know there are people that kind of quit their their, their day jobs um, and go into property development. More people fail at that strategy than than anything else. I think the successful investors are the ones that that look at it as a business and uh, look at it a bit more of, of a marathon than a sprint and and build their property portfolio and their property business gradually and learn the business from within it.
0: long term is definitely advantageous and it's Obviously, in in, in in conjunction with market cycles, I mean, noticing that so being involved since 1989, I mean, that was just before. Well, I was only just being born, but quite a big crash there, really high interest rates as well. So, you kind of, accidentally or not, you kind of got into it the wrong time. Tell us a bit more about that recession in in the late 80s, early 90s, and the effect that that had, and what you
1: saw through your own eyes. Okay, so uh, we will start from 1990, which is uh, when the American bank that I was working for pulled out of the UK uh, and I started my own commercial finance brokerage uh, with a guy called Mike Woodfine. That was the money center. Uh, and we literally had, I think it was £600, £300 each we put in, bought two desks, a filing cabinet, and a bin. And we filled the bin far more than we filled the bank account to start off with because, you know all of the businesses that were wanting to raise or at least two thirds of the businesses that that wanted to raise finance were actually finding times very, very tough. And not surprisingly, their property values had gone down. Interest rates had gone to 15, sometimes even 18% and they were struggling. And if you can imagine if that scenario happened to landlords today, it would be disastrous and not many would survive. So we looked uh, then at why two thirds of them were failing, and one third were thriving. And the third that were thriving had very high levels of cash reserves, so they could tide themselves through the tough times. But they were also able to be opportunistic, predatory even, uh, and buy properties that others had unfortunately lost uh, for next to nothing because nobody else could raise the finance. Um, uh and they were buying them really really cheaply at auction putting them back into working order remortgaging them and getting their money out and this is before buy to let as a a phrase or even a product even existed it was sort of six years before six years later that that came along but mike and i watched and helped a lot of those uh successful landlords to build their property portfolios and we learned a lot from them we also learned a lot from the ones that collapsed because we did a lot of work uh, with insolvency practitioners to try and sort of mitigate the problems for those people as much as possible. So that's kind of where our appetite, and it's quite a unique sort of view on the industry in that we look at it from uh, four angles, property, finance, tax, and law. And uh, I think that's quite quite unusual in the market to, to come across individuals that sort of have a, a base knowledge of all of those skill sets. So that was very useful for us. As far as strategy goes, we didn't really have one as such. Uh, it was, let's try and earn some more some more money so we can copy what the rich guys are doing. And then thereafter, uh, my friends jokingly called it our dustbin man strategy because we picked it up as we went along.
0: <laughs> That's a great analogy. And it's, it's very important to always learn from successful people. And as you say, you're, you're monitoring people, working with people that were being successful in property and you've, Pretty much copy and pasted picked it up as you've gone along as well and it's enabled you to be in the position that you are today
1: absolutely nobody's got a monopoly on good ideas um so you know if you're going to copy somebody if you're going to well there's two ways to learn isn't there you can either learn from your own experiences and if they're bad ones that's that's usually an expensive way uh or you can learn from other people's experiences so we made it our our business to network with as many successful people as we possibly could Uh, for two reasons. One, that we wanted to write the mortgage business and deal with the the financial services related aspects of their business and help them with that. Uh, But also it it helped us to learn what we should and shouldn't do. Uh, Not saying we didn't make mistakes, we still made plenty of our own, but we learned from other people's mistakes. Uh, So learn from their experiences is a, a much cheaper way than making your own mistakes. Is there any uh, particular mistakes that you've made that
0: stick out in your memory that you're happy to share for the benefit of people listening? Uh,
1: I wouldn't. So, yeah, I I think the types of property to buy, I never did uh, HMOs or or student lets or anything like that, that this wasn't my bag. And because I was working in a profession, I didn't have a lot of time to commit. so that's why I kind of stayed away from that market. I couldn't sort of take the summer off to go and paint a load of houses and clear out student drunk and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we've always gone for either working professionals' homes uh, or uh, retirees' homes. And the retirees and uh, people with young children it was a far better uh, and more robust market because there was less turnover in terms of people. Um, I think the properties that I would have probably stayed away from, if I, if I was to start again, were the ground floor flats, um, because you know, you look at them and on paper, it seems like they've got a better yield, but when, when you take off the service charges and um, the rental so the maintenance charges, that reduces the yield quite significantly you've got effectively a depreciating asset because the lease is running out and you're going to have to pay all over again for the property to extend the lease at some point when it becomes unmortgageable. And ground floor flats, people tend not to want to leave the windows open uh, for security purposes, which means that you get more issues with damp condensation, mold, call it what you will. Um, so they, they, they need to be refurbished and maintained more and they tend to have a faster turnover because you're appealing to a younger market. So you get the, the boy meets girl scenario and moves into, a, or wants to buy a big house of their own and so on. So you, you tend, I haven't really, really ever found that people stay in ground floor one bed flats for 10 years, but bungalows and houses, they do. And as I say on paper, they look like a lower yield, but the reality and the numbers have proven that the the return on capital, on the return on equity invested has always been higher from those types of properties because of the longevity of the tenancies.
0: So in a nutshell, buying the right property in the right area, ideally sort of houses, freehold and so forth, has put your portfolio in a much better position over time.
1: Yes, Uh, but I've also got flats. Um, But as I said, if I was to start again with all of the learning experience, you asked me what my, what my mistake was. I'm not sure it was a mistake as such because I've done well out of all of the properties, but I think that's more by luck than judgment because I've been in the right time. You know, I could not have predicted the interest rates would have come down from 15% in 1990 to 5% in the, in the noughties to half percent for, uh, you know, so a quarter to three quarters of a percent for the last 10 years. you know, that's a phenomenal drop. So that's, that's certainly helped me and the capital appreciation before that has helped me. Um, but as I said, you know, if you had the, if you had the time machine and you could go back, what, which properties would you buy over, which properties wouldn't you buy, then I think the flats I would have given a miss to and bought the the houses and the bungalows.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely fair. And, um, just actually rolling back to 2006, 2007, cause you've been lucky or, in terms of who listens it's unfortunate to go through you know two full recessions did, did you see any correlations between 1990 1991 and then 2007 2008 um were there any obvious market signs at all or did it just catch comp- everyone off guard do you think
1: uh i think the credit crunch so the sort of 2007 eight, nine, uh nobody foresaw or maybe half a dozen clever people in the world that they've now made films about, uh, about shorting the market. I wasn't one of those clever people. I had no idea that was coming. And I think anybody who tries to claim that it was is uh, just trying to not make a name for themselves nowadays. Um, if they'd have known, they would have they would have sold all their properties and shorted the market the same as the other billionaires that did that. Um, so no, I didn't see that coming. Um, but it's been it's you know there are things that I've done prior prior to that which have worked in my favour. So uh, I remortgaged a lot of properties just before the credit crunch. Uh, now you could say that was luck. You could say it was sort of strategy because I was refinancing everything every three or four years anyway at, at, for a long period of time. So I got myself some very very good tracker rate mortgages uh, that are running at anything from half over base to one and a half over base. Um, So, but is there a correlation between the two recessions? No, because one was a a boom and bust scenario uh, and interest rates broke it. And the other one was kind of a boom scenario where the banks went bust, not the property market. um, And the low interest rate environment bailed out both the banks and the borrowers at the same time. I think if the credit crunch would have happened and we'd have seen 15% interest rates, then it would have been a disaster. You know, the financial model of the world as we know it would not exist in its current form.
0: So a lot, of people. In terms of where we are now, with you know relatively low interest rates, is it's pretty much enjoy it while it's here. But again, taking that long term view, you know, obviously none of you know, none of us have um, got this crystal ball in front of us. But you, is it fair to say that you would expect over time those rates to start creeping up once? You know economic bits and pieces have been dealt with
1: yeah the bank of england says that the the natural interest rate is around three percent and it's currently uh, in in the current market and it's currently uh sitting at 0.75 uh so that was a few years ago actually that i read that statistic whether they've revised that since i don't know um I think interest rates. I don't, nobody really knows the, 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 the whole market and economies are very fragile at the moment. Uh, so I don't really know which way interest rates are going to go. Uh, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. I guess is the best you can do in a in such a uncharted territory, so, so to speak.
0: And that's why it's, it's fundamental to think about economics when you're thinking about property as well. Because it's okay going and buying X, Y, Z, and you know. You're all singing and all dancing, but you have to take into consideration the economic circumstances at a time and try and use them to your advantage as best as possible. You briefly touched on uh, tracker mortgages there. Now, I believe that's what made you the lead claimant uh, in this, you know, in the UK's largest ever class action case. Can you touch on a bit more about your involvement in that, why you done it, and and the result?
1: Yes. Well, if you've seen the film Erin Brockovich. Uh, that was a class action. That was, uh, and, and ours was the largest class action in the UK. Unfortunately, I'm nowhere near as good looking as Brokovich. Uh so I doubt they'll be making a film about mine. Uh, and um, it's it's slightly less interesting to the average the, the Joe public. But the, just the background to the case was, uh, I had a a 25-year mortgage, buy-to-let mortgage uh, with the West Brom Building Society. And it was fixed for the first five years and reverted to a tracker rate mortgage for the remaining term. And that tracker rate was, I can't remember, X% percent above the Bank Bank of England base rate. So unless the Bank of England base rate moved, then my mortgage payments shouldn't have moved. But the building society decided that it was losing money uh, because it had done these deals before the credit crunch and that it wanted to change the terms unilaterally. So, you know, without both sides agreeing. So they added 2% to the interest rate margin. Now that obviously annoyed a lot of people. There were 6,700 landlords affected by this move. Um, they particularly chose landlords that owned three or more properties. So they felt that they wouldn't be protected by consumer legislation. And they they wanted just to make more money, but they, obviously the landlords didn't agree. And we said, well, that's a breach of contracts. And our lawyer said, yeah, that certainly is a breach of contracts. Uh, you can sue them. Um, but we started off by making a claim to the financial ombudsman and they dismissed the claim. We then went to the high court. We raised 350,000 pounds to take the claim to the high court. And we lost that one as well to start off with, um, which was a bit of a a disaster, but we had to keep going. My mortgage, my personal mortgage that was affected, it was only one, and it was for 73,000 pounds. So 2% extra on 73,000 pounds wasn't a lot of money. But my fear was, if this building society was allowed to get away with this, that all the other mortgage lenders that have lent billions, possibly even trillions on buy-to-let mortgages could follow suit, And there were lots of people that shared that opinion. So we raised even more money. So in total, £650,000 and we took it to the court of appeal, uh, where there were three judges sitting on the case. Um, We, added to our legal team by bringing in a top QC who had already sort of created some of the case law that we were reliant upon. Uh, And one of the three judges was Lord Leveson. You may have heard of the Leveson report. So very high ranking judge. In fact, all three judges were very high ranking judges. I don't think you could get any higher ranking judging judges on the panel. Uh, And our claim, or, or our, our claim actually split into two parts because but what the building society was saying is that they could call in the loans with 30 days notice. If they didn't, if they lost the first part of the case. So we had to win on two co- uh, counts because if we'd have just simply won on the, uh, they can't increase the interest rate, pay back the money, which we did. And they paid back the 27 and a half million pounds that they'd overcharged and they. Uh, They were also ordered to pay 100% of the legal costs, which is almost unheard of. Um, We had to win the second part of the case as well, which we also won. And the judge ruled that if somebody has got a long-term mortgage, uh, it can't be called in unless the borrower is in default. So so, So effectively we won. And I think that's... You know, you asked me what are the the real proud moments in my life, and I said I can't pick one in particular. That was one of them. It was was a really, really difficult period of time. I didn't get paid any money for it. It was two and a half years of work. I was staying up until midnight answering people's emails. Because people don't just give you £650,000 to fight your legal action case. Uh, You know, they do it because they've got a vested interest themselves, and they want to know every single turn of the way uh, and have their input into what they think should be done. Uh, and some people have some great ideas, and obviously some don't. <laughs> so it was a challenging time, but thank goodness we won uh, because it stopped all of the other lenders following suit and increasing those tracker rate mortgages, which would have spelled disaster for many, many landlords.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sure there's people you know listening to this that have been on tracker mortgages and might even been involved in in that case as well. You know, so i would extend a thank you because you know it's people like yourself and actions like that that really benefit the masses and bring and bring into light, you know, that the, the, there's a conception at the moment that a lot of you know, landlords, landlords and so forth, we're getting pushed around from pillar to post an example well, many examples. You're coming up, um, you know, tenants, tenants, agency fee ban popping in, and then some bright sparks come up with the notion of trying to eradicate section 21, which
1: I think I mean, is bonkers. The eradication of section 21 is a bit like Brexit, isn't it? So somebody says, uh, oh, let's get rid of Section Twenty-One, and all the—it's a vote winner. Clearly, the only reason that anybody would say that is to win votes from Generation Rent. It's a thirty-year-old piece of legislation. Landlords aren't particularly liked as a group, uh, so, and there are more tenant voters, particularly within Generation Rent, that are deemed to be floating voters and could go either way. So uh, let's target those. What can we do? Section 21. It's a bit like, what can we do? Let's, let's, let's all like exit the, uh, EU. Um, nobody's actually asked the question, well, what's the alternative then? They've only asked, they've only started to ask the question. They've only launched the consultation after they've made the decision. So if you look at Brexit, uh, we all, the UK voted leave, but we hadn't, there was no plan as to what happened if the leave vote happened. And it's exactly the same as section 21. Uh, So the politicians have decided that there's a high likelihood that section 21 will be scrapped, but what's the alternative? How will people get possession of their property? So um, I can see this two ways. I think it was a stupid decision. You can't make a decision to do something without deciding what you're going to replace it with. I think that was the stupidest decision. Now I've over my 30 years granted thousands of tenancies and only used a section 21 notice five times and not in recent years. So I could argue that I don't really need it. Um, But what is the impact if it's withdrawn on lending institutions appetite for lending? Uh, What about the people, who do need it for legitimate reasons, who operate in different markets to me. Uh, the student market being a classic example, so I don't work in the student market, but if you rent a property to a group of five students and one doesn't leave, what happens then? What happens to the people who let their properties on from the springs and through the summer on a serviced holiday let basis, and then do six months' tenancies, or during the shorter uh, during the short autumn and winter period you know, if they can't serve that notice how does that work uh, now there are, are grounds under section eight to deal with that um, but it's discretionary uh, so very difficult so I think the biggest mistake with tampering with section 21 is not knowing what they're going to replace it with launching the consultation after they've decided to make the decision
0: and in, in terms of you, know, you touched on it then short sightedness this is such a great way of putting it because you know where we're in this revolving you know cycle of every what, four or five years or whatever it is you know you're going to be beating around from you know pillar to post governments may change and so forth now i've never had to do a section 8 before but from people that i've spoken to that have i understand that even that process can be quite long-winded so it's a very valid point you make it's if you're going to come up with a suggestion of well let's get rid of section 21 okay but you need to have at least you know option a b c this is what we're looking to change it with not just oh yeah we need votes let's get rid of section 21 and increase more misery on landlords and, and ultimately us to an extent tenants at the end of the day um
1: well i'll just read if if it's not resolved satisfactorily and i think this is why the government is now realizing that it needs to look at the consultation and and get some proper feedback. If they mess this up then it will just result in the property sector shrinking again. Now generation rent would argue well for every one less landlord there's one more owner occupier there's no more properties. I don't i don't accept that because owner occupiers are Moving out of shared accommodation, they're moving. Um, they're moving from mum and dad. Uh, so if there's less rental property, where do the people who need to rent then live? So if, you, for, for example, all the student landlords uh, decide to sell up to owner occupiers, where are the students going to live? Um, if everybody who's letting to people on benefits manages to sell up uh, to owner occupiers. Where is somebody who can't afford to buy a home, can't afford to get a mortgage, isn't in a financial position due to uh, perhaps only just arriving in the UK, perhaps having an adverse credit history in the past, perhaps just going through a divorce, illness, disability, uh, out of work. Where are they going to live if they can't rent property?
0: That's a very good question. I'm not sure many people, if anyone has has, has thought about that, to be honest with you.
1: I think a lot have, Um, but, uh, you know, generation rent have to be very, very careful. There's also uh, this other train of thought that they come up with that for every landlord there, there is less, there's another owner-occupier. Well, again, that's not true because if we look at the statistics um, sort of over the last 20-odd years and how many properties have been built that went into the private rented sector, um, investors will buy off-plan. That's proven. It's not a track record. It's not necessarily something that I would advocate, but there are a lot of people invest into property off-plan. They're not first-time buyers. If those investors are discouraged from entering the market, then those properties simply won't be built. There are also properties, a first-time buyer won't buy a disused pub, church, office and turn it into flats or shared living accommodation a landlord will. If they're discouraged from investing, those projects won't happen. So uh, one of, uh, an accountant I know uh, very well, a retired accountant, did some analysis on this uh, and he actually delved into the government think tank's own analysis uh, and produced figures that show that 93% of all properties added to the UK property pool in the last well, I, I can't remember the exact period of time, but it was a a, a considerable period of time—ten, fifteen, twenty years, something like that. Ninety-three percent of them wouldn't have been added if it wasn't for the private rented sector and the explosion of buy-to-let and the availability of buy-to-let mortgages from 1996 onwards. So, yeah, it's a you know, it, it's a ticking time bomb, and uh, you know, you've got amateurs trying to defuse it, and it's it's a scary time
0: without a shadow of a doubt i totally agree it's again going back to that short-sightedness uh, people aren't thinking of the the medium and long-term impact i mean that just from even coming out with the ideology of oh let's have a look at getting rid of section 21 can have profound economic impact on, on the housing and rental sector in, in the long run and um, uh, and again as you, you say, down to vote winners
1: but you know from what i've heard from the people who've spoken to the government ministers it's not a case of, will it happen? It will definitely happen. Um, and the best we can do, I think, as a group, is not to campaign for it not to happen, but is to look at, okay, what are the objectives? What are, What is the most important? And how can Section 8 of the Housing Act 88 be amended to be able to give people the grounds to be able to satisfy the mortgage lenders that it's still safe to lend to this sector? Uh, to be able to show people that if they want to sell their house or move back into it, they can do so um, without too much hassle. I think they're they're the key grounds, and then you've got the the other important grounds like uh, what happens with students at the end of their their student year, and what happens to uh, the holiday uh, homeowners who do sort of six months letting in the winter and six mm-hmm. months serviced accommodation later.
0: What I would say to anyone you know, listening to this, thinking, oh, that sounds really scary, is if you were to head over to you know, property118.com, there's so much amazing content on it. You know, I, have to, I have to admit, Mark, uh, having read through a lot of it myself, you know, the work that yourself and your team do is profoundly fantastic. So for anyone, I uh, will put a link in the show notes, go to property118.com because it's these sort of things that you need to be aware of uh, and about how it's going to affect you in the short,
1: medium and long term. Thank you. And I I can't take credit for that. I can take credit for starting it. I'm the founder, but I'm no longer a shareholder or a director of property one one eight. I do comment on the, on the forum regularly. Uh, but it's, it's really grown to a community where the users in that community produce all of the contents, uh, or, or probably 80, 90% of it. So they ask questions and other people will answer the questions and you get a diverse, um, range of opinions. Uh, we've got more than our fair share of property professionals. I'm talking about accountants, solicitors, barristers, etc., on the website who like to flex their egos um, and show that they know what they're talking about. So um, it's nice. It's a community built website. So it's not like I've written all 93,000 pages of content. Um, I, I just now focus on the tech stuff. Neil Patterson, who's now the managing director of of property118.com and runs the business, uh, Property 118 Limited. Uh, He's responsible for uh, sort of collating that content, deciding which of the readers' questions and various articles, news-based, to publish. So as I say, can't take the credit for the way it is. Uh, That that credit goes down to Neil Patterson and the, the tens of thousands of people that read and contribute to Property 118 on a daily basis. But I can take the credit for being the founder and that's why I've kept that title.
0: <laughs> I don't blame you for in your shoes. I'll be, be doing the same thing. Well, I'm completely aware that um, time is precious, time is money. So uh, we'll begin to wrap up with a couple of quickfire questions if that's okay. Sure. Now I don't write these questions, but these are questions that are, might sound quite boring. However, they always get the best answers. So i start off with, what is the best piece of advice that you've
1: ever been given? Uh buy property what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given it's very difficult to say because i don't really act on bad advice i've made some bad decisions but i don't really act on bad advice i think i'm smart enough to to work out what the bs is hats hats off that's fair that's absolutely
0: fair enough what one piece of advice would you give to someone that is in limbo over making
1: a decision there's a reason that anybody is in limbo over making a decision uh and i believe very much in trust your gut feel if it doesn't feel right don't do it if you just feel that you haven't got enough information get it uh this kind of gung-ho just do it type approach i oh, jump in with both feet it'll all be okay i'm not a big advocate of that i'm very analytical you know in the way i look at things so if i'm not comfortable with things i either get comfortable or get out is 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 my thinking
0: Perfect, straightforward advice. That's absolutely brilliant. And finally, in the last three years, uh, what belief, habit, or behavior has had the most positive impact on your life?
1: Well, in the last three years, I've moved to uh, Malta. So living in 300 days of sunshine is marvelous uh, in a far more tax-friendly text, uh, tax environment. I wish I'd have done that years before. So um, that's a real big change of habit. Uh, it's it's enabled me to see more of my friends and family, which seems like a weird thing, but uh, you know, paying for them to come over on holidays, you know, with the with the additional benefits of the tax system that I've got, I can afford them now to to buy friends and family tickets to come over on uh, plane tickets and spend more time with them. Uh, you know, previously you'll spend an hour or two with your folks over Sunday lunch or what have you. And I now get to spend, you know, a week or two, Two, three, four, five, six times a year. So that's great. So I see a lot more of my friends and family. So I think that's a habit that I've built over the last three years, and I'm really proud. and pleased I have done. and wish I'd have done it many, many years ago.
0: Oh, that's really insightful. Uh, thank you uh, very much for sharing, as well. I'd love to be able to pick up maybe a part two. Um, you know, at, at some stage, and um, between now and then, if people want to get hold of you, you mentioned that you still do um, things in and around tax. So people want to get hold of you, Mark, how do people get hold
1: of you? Okay, so I've got an executive assistant called Yvonne. Um, She manages my diary, uh, because I do like to spend some time on the sunbed and enjoying the the, the cocktails in Malta as well. Um, So, you know, in the summer months, I tend to only work in the mornings doing the consultations. I'm far more available in the winter. Uh, Contact Yvonne, uh, telephone number 01603428 Five zero four, or you can email Yvonne at uh, Y-V-O-N-N-E, Yvonne at property one one eight dot com. Or if you want to see what I'm what I do in terms of helping people to restructure their tax affairs, then wwwproperty dot property one one eight dot com forward slash tax.
0: I will put all the links in the show notes as well for people that do want to do that. Well, Mark can go enjoy the sunbed and enjoy uh, one of what I assume is the 300 days of sunshine
1: over in Malta at the moment. It's absolutely stunning today, yes. So I will, I'm definitely going to do that. Thanks again for inviting me, Rob, and hopefully, hopefully, the people have found this useful.
0: But thanks for your time, Mark. Take care. Thank you. Thank you